it's really just about being loose enough to just kind of joke around and be yourself. Because like you said, everybody's got a sense of humor. The bass player in my band was at one point fired from a, he was in a, a Santana tribute band and they fired him because during the introduction of one song, he said something into the mic and made a joke about the, the song. And they were like, that's inappropriate. You're fired. And he came wow. into rehearsal with us. And I said, dude, if you don't make the joke in the mic, you're fired. That's, I mean, all of my band members got mics on stage, whether or not they actually sang, because the, the rule was if something stupid occurs to you to say, say it into the mic so the audience hears it. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. What's going on? We're here today with a good friend of mine, Phil Johnson. Howdy, uh, so howdy. Phil, super excited to have you on the podcast today. We, you know, we just were hanging out uh, yesterday on our first Access Playground. Phil is a professional comedian and musician, and he's really got this cross-section between his music and comedy. And he's been featured at the Sundance Film Festival, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, SiriusXM, Amazon Prime, and it's really been a highlight of my life for like the past, gosh, how long, probably about a year, it feels like, since we've been doing this First Access Playground, being able to connect yeah. with you weekly, and you know, for any of my jokes that I make that aren't <laughs> really bad dad jokes, you guys probably have Phil Johnson to, to thank for that. I think at least a little bit of, of your humor is, is rubbed off on me. But hey, here's one thing you guys should know about Michael is he secretly oh, has no. a very dark God. sense of humor. <laughs> I do. I, I absolutely do. But Phil, yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for taking time to be here. Yeah, yeah me too. I'm I, excited. I think that, yeah, I think that you have a unique kind of cross section of what you do with, with comedy and, and music and I think it's going to be inspiring for people to hear your story. And I, I haven't really fully heard your entire story as well. So I'm looking forward to connecting more. So maybe to start with, Phil, could you introduce yourself quick, quickly and maybe share an introduction in terms of how you got started doing music and comedy together? Sure. Yeah. So I do mix the two. I, I mostly bill myself as a comedian these days because that's where my money comes from. But I started playing the flute when I was eight because my mom said girls like musicians. And I was like, <laughs> sign me up. And she said, what instrument do you want to play? And I was like, I don't know. And she goes, well, look, if you play the flute, you'll always be the only boy in the section. And I was like, cool, that sounds like a good idea. And I was the only boy in the flute section all the way through college. Never dated another flautist, strangely, but did meet my best friend Dave in the clarinet section in high school. So that I got that <laughs> out of it. And then I picked up piano when I was like 12, picked up uh, guitar when I was 16, and wanted nothing more than to just be the guitar player in a rock band. That was all I wanted. I started my first band in college when I was like 20. I remember my our first gig, I had to wait in the green room because I wasn't old enough to be in the bar, you know, that kind of stuff. And <laughs> then did like regular rock band stuff through the 90s and the earliest part of the 2000s. And then I had split off with the guys that I was playing with. And I had these couple of goofy song ideas that they never wanted to do. They were very serious about the whole thing. And and so I was just sitting in my studio, just throwing stuff down on a recorder just to, you know, kind of see what was going to happen next. I wasn't a singer yet. None of that kind of stuff. And so I, I had written these couple of goofy songs 
Uh, one was called Whale Blubber, which is a love song. And I was at, I had a mentor <laughs> in the 90s. Of <laughs> course. Well, it was actually, it was based on, <laughs> if you've seen the movie Me, Myself, and Irene, the Jim Carrey film, there's a line in that mm. movie where he and his girl are sitting next to the lake. And she goes, I can't remember which way the dork, the conversation goes, but one of them says, well, what if I moved to Alaska? And he goes, I would go with you. And he goes, yes, but would you eat whale blubber for me? And my girlfriend and I just shot up and we're like, that's a song title right there. And so that's the hook line is, would you eat whale blubber for me? And uh, mm. so I had a mentor in the 90s who was very much like you, Michael. Uh, his name was Tim Sweeney. He was not nearly as kind. He was very aggressive, but he would, at our conventions, he would walk around with a golf club and slam it on the table. But he was a wonderful person. And he was kind of the, the godfather of indie music at the time. Had worked for the major labels and was giving us all the secrets of becoming an independent musician and warning us <laughs> off major labels. And so all this tour hacking stuff with the handing out CDs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We were doing that stuff in the 90s. And that was what Tim was training us to do. And <laughs> so he passed away a bunch of years ago, unfortunately, but he was he was really great. And so he and the people that I was in that community with heard these couple of songs, these couple of funny songs, and they were like, that's what you should be leaning into. And I was like, no, 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 that's B-side stuff. I'm a serious <laughs> songwriter. And they were like, no, seriously, do that. And uh, Tim even uh, suggested, seems like too soft of a word, demanded that I go solo and, and, and split <laughs> off from doing everything with my band. And so I said, okay, I'll do half and half. And then like six months later, I was doing 90% solo gigs because they're so much easier. So I started playing these couple of funny songs in with my serious songs at coffee shop gigs and things like that. And people really started to latch on to them. And I used to, and I would, the introductions of my songs, even my serious songs started to get jokier. And cause you get that, you get that first laugh and you're like, Oh, Oh, that's a new drug. Oh yeah. I like that one. And, and it becomes addictive to get those laughs. And so I had a couple of funny songs, I started to joke around during the introductions I had a terrible habit of forgetting my lyrics, so I would make jokes when that would happen. I still <laughs> forget my lyrics regularly. And, <laughs> and so I was doing that, and, and then I got invited to do a comedy music show in San Francisco at a place called the Hyena Theater that doesn't exist anymore. Theater, strong word for place in an office building with a few folding chairs in it, but that's what they called it. And uh, <laughs> so I had, I don't know, three, four songs. So I went up and did my three or four songs. And the MC at that show was a lady named Lynn Ruth Miller, who was starting her comedy career at the time at the age of 72. And she was the MC that night. She said, Hey, I need a guitar player for my act. Do you want to come do it with me? And I was like, what are we doing? And she said, well, you're going to play anarchy in the UK by the sex pistols while I throw lingerie at the audience. And I was like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, let's do that. That sounds fun. <laughs> Another Tuesday night, <laughs> Another Tuesday night. And so she started taking me around to all the comedy venues here in the San Francisco Bay area and we'd do her act, and then she'd tell the producer, hey, he's got some stuff. Why don't you put him up for a few minutes? And so they put me up to do a song or two. And I immediately started to catch guitar comic flack. Guitar comic is practically a slur in the comedy community. And uh, really? yeah, it is. It's, it's, we're very, very looked down upon. <laughs> and mostly it Why? is because, well, it's because uh, it, it's often sort of a jealousy thing as well, because we're hard to follow on a mm. stage when we've taken the energy up real high and you're taking you're all the chicks too like yeah right you're both funny and you get play guitar it's yeah. just not fair oh uh, yeah speaking as somebody who has not been single since i started doing comedy i've not been able to take advantage of that but yeah so there's a there's a they don't like to follow guitar comics they think it's an unfair advantage and 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 
to be fair, a lot of guitar comics are terrible too. So there, there is that issue. It, so she started introducing me to the local producers around here and I started getting up and doing my three little songs and I lived off those three songs for like a year. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to be part of this community, then I should learn how to do this art. And I had never thought of being a stand-up. I loved stand-up comedy, but I never thought I'd be doing it. And I've also never thought I'd be a singer. Like I said, all I wanted to be was a guitar player in a rock band, you know? And <laughs> so I was forced into being a singer. And then I entered this community and I was like, well, I better start really learning how to do stand-up as well. And that process is, you know, write some stuff and go up and bomb and write some more and go up and bomb and write some more and go up and bomb. And the more you do that, the better you get at it. And now it's been 19 years of doing that. And I've gotten pretty good at it. Most people will say. Some people will tell you I'm still terrible at it, but I don't pay attention to those people <laughs> but that was really it so it was it was lynn ruth and lynn ruth was the one that took me to the edinburgh french festival in scotland to do that with her in 2005 we had a great time doing that and so it's, it's been a pretty wild ride in, that i never expected that's taken me places i'd never thought i'd go <laughs> super cool yeah th thank you for sharing that Sure. And it's so interesting that, yeah, you got your start in music and you weren't had nothing to do with comedy. You weren't even thinking about it. And then it yeah. kind of found, found you in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. And like I said, I was always a fan. I grew up on Robin Williams and Bobcat Goldthwait and, and you know, some of the old school 80s guys, Bob Nelson and, you know, things like that. And uh, so I was always a big fan of stand up. I love seeing it, but I never, never thought I'd be doing it. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's a it's a wild art, man. It's the most dangerous art I've ever partaken in. <laughs> dangerous that's an dangerous interest, interesting word for it yeah well i mean because i've i've played in pit orchestras i've played with big 80 i've done opera i've i've played in rock bands i've done theater i've done you know i've done a lot of different types of art and that's the scariest one because it's you and a mic on a stage and that's mm. it and you are in control of that entire room having a good time that night mm. yeah it's, it's really interesting i mean certainly like the whole your whole story it shines a light on just the idea of doing something unique or having something because, you know, if all you do is you play music and you play the same kind of music as everybody else. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like that purple cow effect, right? With Seth mm -hmm. Godin, that, that book about <clears throat> the idea of a purple cow and about mm -hmm. how, you know, if you're driving down the street and you look in the field and you see a bunch of cows, then normally you won't like think twice. You'll just kind of keep driving or whatever. But if you see there's one cow that's purple, then instantly it grabs your eye and you're like, whoa, like that's interesting. Like it's, it's different and it's just, mm -hmm. you know, it grabs your attention. And, you know, the analogy being that, you know, for us and our industry and for us, particularly as like musicians, thinking about, you know, what is it that makes us a purple cow or what can we lean into that does kind of set us apart? And in your case, you know, having the comedy flair to it is you know, something that is purple cow thing that, that at least in relation to like other musicians yeah and even in I comedy too us, because that yeah. that definitely oh, comes yeah. up because i have i will because i said i mean there are guitar guitar comics there are musical comics there's lonely island and you know there's different types of musical comedy and things like that but people will come up to me after a show and go i don't like musical comedy but i like what you're doing and so mm. that's always where i kind of find my purple cow is you know mm. you know being more than they expect when they see an acoustic guitar sitting on stage and kind of cringe and go, oh, no, what's going up? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yes. Yeah, so if you can just set like the lowest expectations possible. Yes. <laughs> then, then nowhere to go but up. 
Yeah, you know, there's something too about that purple cow idea of, you know, in some ways, just being a musician for all of us, yeah, I think it's sort of like being a purple cow in mm-hmm. relation to people who aren't musicians. You know, they sure. see what we do and they see the music and they're just like, that is inc- amazing. Like, how do you do that? Where you turn the ideas into like actual music mm-hmm. and sometimes not even great music. <laughs> you know, there's been times where I've been on Zoom and, you know, our accountant is like doing something on a spreadsheet and I'll do a little jingle. I'll be like, you know. He's Bill. He's Bill, the man <laughs> with the plan. And I remember, like we we did that, and he just lost his mind. He's like, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing!" <laughs> he like recorded it and shared it with his whole team. And it was it was a good reminder of this that kind of idea that like purple cow, like you just being a musician is really unique and interesting. It's not so much of a purple cow in this community because it's like mm-hmm. you being a musician, like we're all musicians. Yeah. So what is it that makes you different from like other musicians in the context of being you know, surrounded by musicians? But like if you were driving by a field, but they were all purple cows and you, and you, everyone had always seen purple cows, then it wouldn't be interesting that it was purple cows. Sure. I just think it's interesting as like musicians, all of us, if we, if we look at part of what you've done with like, you know, adding the comedy to it and doing something unique there, I think all of us have an opportunity to kind of lean into and figure out what are some other elements about who we are and what we're interested in and our passions and what we're you know, good at that we could maybe mix together so that the music you know is, is a part of who you are, but it really is connected to these other you know unique you know things that stand out. Sure. And a lot of that comes from, I mean, even within the comedy community, we have to do that. In fact, it's almost enforced in the comedy community that whatever is your special thing that gets attached to you. And a lot of mm. times that's, it's, it, it's always what, what's the most obvious thing that people are going to notice when you walk on stage, that is the first thing you have to address as a comedian. So mm. when I walk on stage, they're not used to seeing dudes who look like me. And so I have to do a couple of hair jokes right mm. at the top of the show so that the audience isn't left wondering, does he, does he know his hair is weird? You know, and then we can move <laughs> on to, to other things. And it was funny because I was doing shows in Portland recently and in Portland, half the dudes have long hair. So I didn't have to do any of that, which was, I thought was funny. It was sort of freeing. I could just go into the other stuff that I wanted to do, but that's, it's kind of the same thing where you've got to find your thing, whether, you know, some comics will be like, you know, I'm the dad comic or I'm the Mexican cholo comic or, you know, whatever is that thing that people can immediately grab onto, which I find Hmm. thoroughly annoying in most cases, because having done this for so long as soon as somebody walks on stage i go oh okay she's gonna do lesbian jokes at the at the top you know and when i don't (laughs) see them at the top of the show it's always very refreshing to to not see that obviousness but the industry kind of demands that type of thing and so for musicians that kind of you know it is it is finding kind of your your extra niche you know or or what kind of issues you want to attach your music to whether that's you know different types of charitable things or religious or non-religious or, you know, whatever, you know, kind of having another avenue that your, your music goes down to that you can attach it to. (laughs) Yes. Designer babies. I mean, the thing with mine, the best thing about doing this comedy music stuff is that I'm not restrained by style. And I never Mm. really liked being restrained by style. We were always a very versatile band and, and like to pull things from all sorts of different places. So when I'm doing is when it's funny, then I don't have to be like every song is a rock song or every song is this kind of song or every song is, I don't have to be stuck in a sound because Mm. as long as it's funny, I always write from a lyrical concept first where I've got a verse and a chorus and I go, okay, what's the music that goes with this story? 
And then I sort of in my brain will put together, okay, well, what if this artist and this artist kind of got together and those don't go together? I'm working on a song right now that is like, what if Rancid did gospel music? And, you know, <laughs> and so things like, so I put those things in my head and then I can play with mm. any style of music I want. My mm. own sort of compositional ticks, you know, come through anyway, and it's still recognizable as one of my songs. And I don't have to be quite so tightly focused on a particular style. So it's a lot of fun to, to be able to do mm. that. <laughs> that is so fun. You know, one thing that came up for me just right now as we're talking about this, and it's a little bit of a cross section between yesterday. You know, mm. Yesterday we had Ryan Kryshak on, on here, and mm -hmm. you know, he's done some awesome things with his YouTube channel, and you know, predominantly focused on cover cover songs, but they also have original songs too. But one thing that just came up as you're describing that was Weird Al Yankovic. Was mm -hmm. sort of like yeah, if, if yesterday's podcast had a podcast with this baby, it would be like Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> it would be Weird Al, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he'd come out like fully formed, <laughs> like it just like yes. immediately came out of the womb, and he was Weird Al with like it's fully grown, curly um, hair, Hawaiian shirt, ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that that was it's an interesting you know kind of cross section, you know, because he had the cover songs, which are pe people are like familiar with the cover songs. Mm -hmm. but then he also added like the comedic uh, twist to it and like parodies of it yeah and it does seem like there can be like a stacking effect you know you just described it how you like you take a few different things and you remix them into something new mm -hmm. it's a powerful a powerful strategy it's just like you think about what are a few different aspects of things that i love and how do i how can i make a baby with my music that sort of blend together these different things that are you know well known or have a lot of traction or a big community mm -hmm. around them yeah. yeah. And I, I kind of almost don't necessarily think about um, anybody else when I'm when I'm writing this stuff. I really just want to play stuff that I want to hear. And so sometimes my references like there's not a ton of rancid fans out in the world, uh, you know, but uh, and even I'm not a huge rancid fan. I like some of their stuff, but I tend to pull a lot of things from music that I don't even necessarily like just because there's something to learn from it. But my holy grail of collaboration right now is what would the Wild Hearts and Lily Allen sound like if they made a song together? And I haven't figured that one out yet, uh, but I keep trying. But those types of, and I find when I do that, the songs sound way more unique. If I just write a song that's a song, then it sounds like a song. And uh, those usually don't get as much traction. The parody mm -hmm. stuff is interesting. I, I don't do it because Weird Al is so good at it. And it's Dude, really I love to tough. Hear a parody song. I feel like you would knock it out of the park with the parody song. I have one. I have one. I wrote a parody of Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song that <laughs> I rarely perform live. And but I What's do it on parody? my live streams. Well, it's I read a book about that song called The Holy or the Broken by Alan Light. And it's a fascinating history of that song. And hmm. at the end of the book, the author says, but I've never heard a really good parody of it. He's heard, you know, heart to fart kind of parodies of it. <laughs> <laughs> but as he explains parody and the true definition of parody is that you are creating jokes about the thing itself that you're parodying. So it's not about just changing the lyrics. So, I mean, technically what Weird Al doesn't even does is not even really parody except in a few cases. Like his, uh, he's got one that sort of adores pastiche, you know, uh, that is uh, that kind of qualifies under that. I was just on another podcast recently where we had very deep discussions about the, the <laughs> definition of parody. <laughs> but... And so what I did was I wrote new lyrics to uh, Hallelujah using the lyrics of Hallelujah, making fun of the song Hallelujah and how it's overused mm -hmm. 
and sort of become this pop culture touchstone and, you know, and things like that. But I actually, I use the actual lyrics of the song, twist them a little bit and reword them and to make fun of the song itself and mm. its place in popular culture. And it's, a, it was quite a bit of work to make it work. And, and I, I put it out and it does okay, you know, but, and it's, yeah, the, it was, I did find myself one day telling my girlfriend, Hey, I, I need you to help me take some pictures for the cover of this thing. And she said, great, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to dress in a white sheet with a big beard. And then you're going to tie me up with an orange extension cord and duct tape my mouth. And then I'm going to uh, Photoshop in like an abandoned warehouse before behind me. And she was like, this is your Tuesday, huh? And I was like, yeah, this, yeah, this is my Tuesday. <laughs> Dressing up like God and being tied to a chair. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is not something that you see every day. Yeah. Yeah. Su super interesting. You know, one thing that I would love to uh, hear your perspective on, yeah, I, I, I think all of us as like humans, like we all have a sense of humor. Like, like there's a, like humor plays such an important role in sure. our, our lives. And I personally don't have a lot of experience kind of underneath the hood of comedy and just the art form that is comedy. Mm -hmm. But I have a few friends who, you know, are like you, who do have uh, sort of this, like have taken training and have been coaching and have been like working on uh, comedy. And I found it like really fascinating just in terms of some of the psychology of jokes and how they work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I found some parallels between like I've had learnings from it where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I could kind of like apply to music as well or like, mm -hmm. or just, you know, human, human interactions. Sure. So I'd be curious to hear you just talk a little bit about comedy as an art form and you may be from the lens of you know, us as artists and really communicators and entertainers what are some maybe lessons we can glean from that to make our performances more entertaining? Sure. Yeah. So God, comedy is really still a mystery to me. I, I, I don't feel like I've been a guitar teacher for 30 years. I can teach somebody how to play the guitar pretty easily. I still, I don't feel like I could teach comedy necessarily. That said, I did have a, a, a fan meetup one day with, with one of my fans that came in through our, our, all of our systems here. And, and I was about to go into my, my normal script of what I do on those. And he was like, hang on, hang on. I just want to talk about comedy because I'm a, I'm starting to become a comedian and I just need your help. And so we, we literally like went through his material for the next half hour, you know, and did kind of stuff like that. So somewhere in the back of my brain, I can teach comedy, but I, I don't have the, the confidence that I would say I could teach comedy yet. You know, even after all this time, it's still magic to me, just like in some ways music is still magic to me, but I've been doing that even longer. So it, it, I can see the the nuts and bolts behind things. With comedy, I've had some some official training, read some books. I never took like, you know, I never went to comedy college or anything like that. Like those, there's you know those types of organizations. And the when I in the books that I read, I don't think I ever used any of the jokes that I wrote in those exercises actually on stage. But they did help me write jokes later on. I've done some training with Jerry Corley out of Los Angeles, who's he's a, a good comedy teacher. And then recently I took a, a month long workshop on showcase sets, which is how do you get the tightest five minutes of, of stand up that you can for festivals and things like that, which was always the hard thing for me. Like I could even from the early days, if you put me on stage for 20 or 30 minutes, I was fine, but put me up for five and I was lost. And mm -hmm. so to really, you know, build that tight, tight, tight five minute set was very difficult. And, and, but that training paid off and it's been working really well for me this year. Um, so as far as the intersections in, in being an entertainer, I think 
the first thing is that in live performances, just being loose enough on stage to goof around a little bit, even in the in serious situations or very serious artists. I think Adele is really fantastic at that. If you've mm-hmm. ever seen some of her concert film, she is really great at telling stories and joking around and not being serious the whole time and then going mm-hmm. into super serious songs about broken yeah, relationships. Super interesting, just in contrast with what what I would expect, you know, knowing her music, I would expect exactly. it to be much more like serious or kind of somber. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this really goes back to all the the Tim Sweeney stuff that I was learning in the 90s. He was very much about don't just go song, 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 song in your shows. You've got to tell stories about these things so that people have something to connect with, which is the same Mm -hmm. thing that we do, you know, all the way through all this stuff, too, is not just Mm -hmm. don't just put the song out. Tell them the story of what's going on and how it was created and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. Adele is really fantastic at that. Dolly Parton is fantastic at that, too. She's a Mm -hmm. lot more scripted because she's been doing it for a thousand years. But she does that where she tells stories in between songs. She makes jokes, you know, and that kind of stuff. The jokes for an average music audience, the jokes don't have to be that good. An attempt at a joke is usually enough to get a laugh out of a rock show, <laughs> you know, because I see and even I laugh, you know. So when I go see I saw the struts play and, you know, he'd make a couple of goofy jokes in between songs. And I laugh because you're you're just in that moment. You know, it's <laughs> different when you're in a stand-up show where people are have paid 20 bucks and want to hear high-quality jokes, uh, or at least mm. what they think are high-quality jokes. And mm-hmm. that's a different type of responsibility. So it's I had a few friends that tried musical comedy and then went back to playing regular music venues because the humor part of it was so much easier in front of a music audience than a comedy audience. Mm. You know, So the yeah. bar is a little bit lower, but it's really just about being loose enough to just kind of joke around and be yourself. Because like you said, everybody's got a sense of humor and just joke around and be yourself. The bass player in my band was at one point fired from a, he was in a a Santana tribute band and they fired him because during the introduction of one song, he said something into the mic and made a joke about the the song. And they were like, that's inappropriate. You're fired. And he came into rehearsal with us. And I said, I said, dude, if you don't make the joke in the mic, you're fired. That's, I mean, all of my band members got mics on stage, whether or not they actually sang, because the the rule was if something stupid occurs to you to say, say it into the mic so the audience hears it, you know? And so it's just that kind of that looseness. And if you're comfortable enough being on stage, if you're not comfortable yet being on stage, then don't attempt that just yet. <laughs> Get comfortable being on stage as a performer first. And then... <laughs> start to work in just being loose and, you know, saying the thing that occurs to you in the moment. Rarely are you going to get in trouble for it. I mean, I say some, some fairly controversial things on purpose during my shows. Controversial depending on where I am in the country and who's listening. That's not so controversial here on the West Coast, but when I go to the Midwest, they, <laughs> they, have, they have some ideas. So, but that's, that's really a big part of it. I mean, as far as, I don't think, musicians need to like study stand-up comedy necessarily. I think watching it is a really great idea and watching it with sort of a, a critical eye as to what's going on. How are they doing it? That's really when I said, okay, well, I need to learn stand-up. That was the first thing I did was I just watched every stand-up special I could get my hands on and started mm-hmm. listening critically. Oh, he got a laugh right there. What was it about that joke that got that laugh to the point where I was actually transcribing whole specials. So I would take a Jim Gaffigan special and literally type out the entire special so that I could see how long a joke was 
on the page, what a good joke looks like on the page, and then go, oh, mine are too long. I got to cut some stuff out of that, you know? And then I do somebody like Stuart Lee, who is a much more verbose, long form joke writer to see sort of the other side of it. So, I mean, you can do that kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's good for anybody that wants to be an effective public speaker of any sort. And we're, that's basically what we are at the end of the day, you know, public speakers. Mm -hmm. And so you can learn a lot by osmosis of just paying attention to it. And, but paying attention to it in a way where you're trying to figure out what they're doing, because mm -hmm. there is a science to it, where it's a science of surprise, mm. sometimes recognition on a small percentage, but most of the time you want to say something that they weren't expecting you to say. Mm. So you set up the setup, and then the punchline is something that they didn't already think of. And there are, there are times I have a few jokes in my act right now where I do say what the audience is thinking of first and there's a different kind of release and a different kind of laugh because mm -hmm. it makes the audience feel smart that they thought of that too you know and so mm -hmm. there's kind of different dynamics that you can go through but there's mm -hmm. you know we have different joke forms like triples and turns and i don't know i can't even think of all the the terminology and stuff now but one that always occurs to me as sort of a parallel with music is the is the the triple because in music we might play a phrase play a riff like three times. And then the fourth time is something different. That's a very common compositional technique. Right. And so in comedy, we do, uh, we'll do two lines that are kind of a straight, straight line, straight line. Third line is the punchline, the twist. And mm. I started using that in my songs where I would go, Oh, let me do a triple here instead of the group of four. And it's, it acts as a little bit of a surprise. And then I can go back to the riff after or something like that. If I just need the four bars to work out, but I was, I, I don't know. I think about, I have deep thoughts about stupid things like groups of three and groups of four <laughs> as they pertain to between music and comedy, you know? So I mm. think, I think as a musician, you can learn things from comedy without actually being a comedian. There's, I have a lot of friends that do comedy now that used to be musicians and they always go, Oh man, maybe I should try some comedy music. And I'm like, yeah, why don't you, you have the skills. You we were a piano player before or a guitarist or whatever. Uh, and they just go, oh, I don't know. So they kind of cut off that portion of what they were doing and just focus on the comedy. And then a lot of comedy musicians, frankly, didn't start as musicians. They started as comics and then decided to add a music thing to it. I was being interviewed for a documentary the other day about comedy music. And, and the, the guy was like, you're like only a, one of three people I've talked to that started in music and then went to comedy. Usually it's the other way around. So, yeah, but uh, I don't know if I answered your question there at all, but. Yeah, you, you absolutely did. Yeah, okay. I think it's I think it's really powerful. Like you just mentioned to not necessarily like you have to go to college to like study comedy or the, yeah. you have to go to college to study music either, right? Which but, I did. But to, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, yeah, I mean it, it certainly like education is, you know, incredibly valuable. And yeah, but anyways, the I, I, for me personally, one thing that comes to mind as it relates to like comedy and using comedy as a tool when you're on stage and performing, what that brings up for me is my yakium is mm. not necessarily like, it's not like a joke, but what, well, but it kind of is. Yeah. But for me personally, it's been a really awesome blessing to like, whenever I need to, or whenever I, if I feel like uncomfortable for any reason, like it's pretty much like a scapegoat where you're like, yeah and it's your getter there's done. something <laughs> 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 the, 
there there's something really nice and maybe it's like a confidence booster there, there there's something nice about having something in your back pocket mm-hmm. that you know you know if you know you ever need to like you can you can kind of bust it out yeah yeah and i can imagine jokes and like and having something like yeah, a story like if you know that i've got three or four different stories or i've got xyz that i can bring up i can share during my set in between mm-hmm. the songs yes that could be really helpful yeah and that's where when I was first starting to lean this direction, I would start cracking jokes during the introductions of songs and I would go, oh, okay, that line worked. Let me keep that line. And I would reuse mm-hmm. that every time I did the show, you know? And I mean, if you go see any of these touring bands there and you see two shows or three shows in a row, you're gonna be like, oh, none of this is is in the moment. You know, there's everything is scripted. They figured out what lines work and they're just gonna use those lines. And I mean, I mean, if you see Dolly Parton once, you know that, you know, because she she's been telling the same stories forever. But it is really effective to just kind of, you know, be be loose in the moment, say the thing that's spontaneous, but then go, oh, that worked. I'm going to keep that. And a lot of times that's how we refine the material on stage. Mm. I mean, it's a like lot real of my, world split testing. Yeah, exactly. It absolutely is. So, I mean, I write on a laptop in the morning. I tap, 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 tap and write my jokes. But and then I rehearse them so that I can remember them. And my, my living room sofa has heard my jokes more than anybody. And, and then when I take them on stage, I go, oh, oh, that didn't work at all. Okay, all right, nice. It, I mean, it may technically be a joke, but for whatever reason, it doesn't hit. And then mm-hmm. you start refining on stage and split testing, you know, I'm literally split testing. Oh, does this line work better? Or does this line work better? And I'll try them out from night to night until I find the one that works. And yeah, so I mean, all that kind of stuff goes goes right into it. But the having the stories or having something that you know works is very comforting. It's also very, it's easy to get stuck in that too, where I kind of have to, sometimes I go, all right, this is, we're all working too well. I need to push my limits a little bit and, and mm. write some new material. And then when the new material is always the most fun to do, I'm working on a new story on stage right now that is not together at all yet. It doesn't have an ending, you know, the middle parts are starting to work and things like that. I'm going to do it at my show tonight. And those are the most exciting times really for comics is when we get up there and we go, here's some new stuff. I don't, it's like the roller coaster doing this. And you're like, I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, and then you either get to the exit safely or you crash and burn and both things are going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I mean, that's the thing. Even if you've got stuff that you know is going to work, you've got a material that, you know, it's just kills. There's always going to be times where it doesn't. I was auditioning at a club recently doing a set of material that won won me at the World Series of Comedy in my round. <laughs> First place, <laughs> World Series of Comedy back in September in my round. And I did it at this club audition and bombed horrendously. <laughs> like they were not having me at all. And so even the great stuff is going to not work sometimes. And you just have to blow it off and go on to the next thing. You know, one of my favorite things <laughs> I ever saw was an interview with Patton Oswalt, who's one of my favorites. And they said, when was the last time you bombed? And he was like, last week? Like, it still <laughs> happens, you know? <laughs> mm. So it's fascinating. That's why there's still magic. Because, I mean, we can technically write a joke that is scientifically should get a laugh. And it just doesn't for whatever reason. And then you have jokes that do work for a long, long, long time. And then the culture kind of changes and they don't work so hot anymore. I've had that happen on a few things, too where I had a joke about I had a joke about Pearl Harbor that was just like always would would hit every time it's in one of my specials and then when the culture around the way people were viewing Asian people 
shifted a couple of years ago, that joke really started not working and I had to not do it anymore. And I wasn't doing it a lot by then anyway. But yeah, it was it's it's intriguing because when people go back and they're like, oh, that joke that guy did back in the 80s, who canceled that guy? Well, it's like it was different back. There was a different viewpoint of whatever was going on back then, you know. So mm-hmm. it's one thing to to talk about comedy in the in the present. But a lot of times stuff that worked back then doesn't doesn't work now for whatever reason, you know, so you have to adapt <laughs> as you go along. For this sure. whole conversation that we're having right now is probably going to be banned in the future. Yeah, probably, probably stepped on a lot yeah, of I mean, toes. That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because, I mean, I don't do political comedy by any means, but my politics are very, you know, seeable through my material, you know, which mm-hmm. is which is why when I go some places, they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't like you. You know, like, and sometimes... <laughs> I mean, I've had people who also don't see it for some reason. Like I have people who are 180 degrees from what I'm looking for in my fan community. And I go, uh, and they had a guy didn't laugh at anything through the entire show and came up to me after he was like, you were fantastic. And he tried to join my Facebook group and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, DND delete. I don't want this guy around, you know, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, I, I mean, there are very overtly political comics and I, I don't I only don't do that because I don't know how to do that well. And to be overtly political, you have to really keep up and write a lot more than I do, probably. And so mm. but yeah, there's all that kind of, you know, finding what your particular voice is going to be and how you're going to attack things. And I'm always fascinated seeing comics doing jokes that I couldn't get away with on stage. <laughs> and then they see me and they go, oh, I could never do that. That bit about eating babies that you do. Yeah, I could never get away with doing that. <laughs> What's wrong with eating babies? Yeah. <laughs> How could anyone object to that? <laughs> and that is it is my favorite bit to do right now. I, it's a, it is literally a bit about eating babies and it's total satire. And uh, it's hilarious when the, there's always a few people in the audience who don't understand that it's satire for some reason. And But it's so fun. It's so fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, as you're describing this, the idea of like split testing and how we're kind of uh-huh. we're split testing live with, with this audience, I was just, it kind of made me chuckle in my mind a little bit, just thinking of you in like a lab coat up on stage and like putting up microphones and like in the it audience. It feels like it sometimes. Like, like a true split test. But, you know, it really does seem like that's a part of the art process that sometimes is, over, sometimes is overlooked. It's just how important it is to like, put out material and get feedback and to iterate on it and mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of quote unquote split test, even like your music and performances. Like it, it used to be the case that basically every band and every artist, like how they wrote their songs is they would, you know, create new material and they'd perform it and they'd see how it, you know, how it landed. And even mm-hmm. before they had the, the final recording, you know, they'd kind of split test it on an audience by performing it and seeing the parts that landed, the parts that didn't, and it would kind of inform the final product that yeah. they end up creating and i feel like for all of us that's a pretty big opportunity like if we can work out ways to kind of quote unquote split test our new material like with our inner circles for example mm-hmm. like if we are able to use that as a testing ground to you know, play around with new material then i think there's something powerful about yeah about having that community feedback and iterating on it that if you just live in a box or you're just doing it completely on your own it could be you know, challenging to know whether you're on the right direction or not. Yeah, it's it's I mean, if you're doing enough shows, it's easy enough to do live. So if I'm doing, you know, I'm at a club and I'm doing three or four shows that weekend, then I can do a different punchline each of those four shows. And I mean, you have to 
there's always the quality of the audience and you know the friday seven o'clock show is going to be a way different audience than the saturday eight o'clock show and things like that so you have to kind of take that into account as well there's patterns that happen in a comedy club where we say that the saturday eight o'clock show is what is what comedians live for and the friday late show makes us reconsider our life choices that pattern holds almost every time at every club it's funny but it's like uh the thing where you know musicians are testing song ideas on tiktok now which is mm. really great and i've done some of that as well i actually had uh a couple of years ago, uh, it was uh, maybe early 2020. I was, I had just spent like four solid years writing my last comedy special, and I was in the editing process. We filmed and everything, and so I was trying to kick myself back into songwriting because I hadn't done any of it in a while. And so I was, I gave myself a goal of writing, putting out a short 30 second song every day for a year, and I did that. Mm. I ended up doing like 368 of these little short, basic setup punchline type of songs, and I would put mm. them up on TikTok and Instagram. I don't think YouTube Shorts existed yet, and and that was a way of test marketing those ideas. And mm. I'd see the ones that people reacted to and go, okay, is there more to that story? Because sometimes there wasn't, and if there was more to that story, then I could build out. A, uh, a more full length song from it. I'm actually still doing that. The song I'm working on now is an extension of one of those songs that I wrote, you know, three, four years ago at this point. And that was really great for seeing what people would connect with. And even some of the ones that they didn't necessarily connect with, but I thought, oh no, there's more to that story that I can play with was really valuable to just kind of throw all those ideas out there and test market them a little bit that way. And uh, mm. some of them just stayed short songs. I actually put out two albums of just 30 second songs. And mm. it's like there's 30, 30, 33 songs on the album. You can listen to the whole thing in 18 minutes. But one of them was a concept album, which was super fun. It's the shortest concept album of all time. And but that that's that split testing that can be done, you know, with songs like that. And I, I definitely can. As soon as I run out of ideas from this batch of songs, I'm going to start that whole thing again and, you know, write another 365 shorties like that and and then start from that. Yeah, mm. but I've been I've been test marketing my next single with in fan meetups this week when I've been meeting with fans on Zoom, and because my next single is it's a cover and it's not funny, which is outside of the box for me, and and so I have been like, hey, let me let me play you this thing, and they're like, oh, that's mm. amazing, I can't wait to hear it. So what's um, the song? I did a cover of Barry Manilow's Copacabana, and here's my process mm. at work. It's as if Nick Cave and Typo Negative collaborated on it. So it is super dark <laughs> and super heavy and super depressing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's fun. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, even this, the idea that you just shared there with like meeting, meeting with your new fans and connecting with them and sharing this with them is a great example of, you know, testing things out by mm -hmm. actually you know, putting it out and connecting with people. And that's awesome. I, I didn't know that you had done that for, for a full year of like, you're creating the you kind of like moments, right. And putting those out. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Um, we should definitely uh, sync up on once we have like a really quick and fast, like moment generator machine, mm. it'd be pretty cool just to create, you know, additions <clears throat> of all of those. And, you know, if people want them, maybe they can join your straight team and they can, you know, get a free, edition of the moment if it's their yeah. first one mm -hmm. and then be wild. You know, if they want more they can you know purchase them yeah yeah it was a it was a lot of work but it's something like kind of like what ryan was talking about yesterday where once you have a system you know you can get that system flowing pretty smoothly where it doesn't take a ton of time 
to make those things happen. Listening to his system yesterday, I was blown away. I was like, that would take me forever to, <laughs> to do that. Mm -hmm. But you know, once you've got the system to go through, it, it goes pretty fast. And the way I had done that was I wrote 100 sets of lyrics before I put the first one out. So mm -hmm. the first two months with just writing just every just 100 sets of those short lyrics, and then I could continue writing I would, you know, spend each day, I'd write like four or whatever it was. And mm. then every Monday, the music part of it was the easy part. I could, you know, bang out a chord progression and a groove behind it pretty quick. The lyrics were the hard part. So every Monday I would sit down and bang out seven arrangements of those little things, just do a raw video, just, you know, cell phone type of video kind of thing. And then that's what I would post. And then when I did the albums, I went back in and recorded, re-recorded the ones in a studio situation here to clean them up a little bit but it, it just became a process where it really didn't take that long to accomplish it even though it sounds like a huge project mm, super smart yeah i feel like a strategy like that mixed with a little bit of like boosted traffic if like for mm. every moment you know you put a dollar behind it or just like a little bit behind it and use that as a testing ground and retargeted people who are you know, already in your community sure i could imagine that really being a powerful yeah, we use this analogy of like starting the fire a lot, you know, kind of mm -hmm. starting the fire and kind of like you're adding you know, little pieces of logs like to, to the fire every single day. Really smart. Yeah, certainly the next time I do it, that's all stuff that I'm planning on doing. When I was doing this, I think it was just before I hooked up with you guys, just before I met you. And so I didn't have the the systems in place to really take advantage of it like I might have. So it was mm -hmm. from an artistic point of view, it was very successful in that I got done what I needed to get done there. And then, but I think the next time I do something like that, yeah, it's, it's going to be a different story where, you know, because right now I'm putting posts up every day. I'm back to doing that. I just started that four, five months ago. And uh, on from some good advice I got from, from Luke Justin Roberts, actually, who, mm. you know, gave me, talked me up a little bit on it. So now I've been, and so I'm starting to see now traction from posting those stand up clips on a regular basis. And so the whole thing, that whole thing will go into that test marketing for new songs too. Mm. Very cool. I mean, yeah, it's probably something that we'll end up working together on in the first access playground. But one thing that we've been developing is a native integration with within Street Team to launch, you know, campaigns, so lots of vir virtual tour hacking campaign, mm -hmm. but any kind of campaign really. And I would love to, I kind of imagine it being a moment publisher. Like, even if it's, if you don't put any paid traffic behind it, if you just had like a moment publisher that integrated where you could sync up your TikTok and YouTube shorts, Facebook, mm -hmm. Instagram reels, and you created a moment per day and you created a caption for it. You click go. And then, you know, there's a, a linked messenger system res response system with it. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, if you say, you know, re res respond with the word blank in the comment and I'll send you, you know, X gift for free. Sure. And then each post you could choose you know, a dollar or two dollars to like to boost it, man. I, I could I can imagine that being a really powerful, quite um, an engine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how about we open up the floor for some audience participation? Let's do it. Uh, so I'm um, looking here in the chat, and if you guys have any questions that you'd like to connect with, feel free to put them in the chat or to actually raise your hand if you want to come here on the show live. If you're in our modern musician community right now, looking at uh, Narayan and Janet. <laughs> it's true for music too. Some things that used to work don't necessarily work as well anymore. Like doing R. Kelly, for instance. <laughs> it's a bummer. It's a bummer, but it's so true. I mean, we we actually used to do uh, Ignition Remix as a cover for our band, and then really, yeah, we had to be like, yeah, pr 
probably shouldn't probably shouldn't uh, do that one. It's you, know, you kind of want to separate the music from the you know the person, but yeah, yeah. it's not always. I was easy to do. never an R. Kelly fan. I mean, like when mm. I read his lyrics, I'm like, these are funnier than anything I could come up with, and they are unintentionally funny. <laughs> I believe I can fly. You didn't like well, that? Well, I believe I can fly. No, that's legit. But a lot of his, <laughs> okay. a lot of his. His dirtier songs and things like that. And these oh, okay. are hilarious. And mm. I know he didn't mean them to be hilarious, but they actually are. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't recall. I mean, aside from Ignition Remix, which was honestly that was never one of my favorite covers, but it got a great crowd um, response. I'm sure. So, I mean, that, that yeah. was nice. But I believe I can fly, man. I I love that song. That's that was a, just song. a great yeah. like the hit you right in the heart. You're like, man, like you're like peeing on people and stuff when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> it does it does put a whole different visual on I believe I can fly. Uh, but I mean what's happening when you're flying above like you know here uh, I mean that's a part of the thing is that I you know I say there the comedy is a science where there is you can you can manipulate the words to make people make a dumb you know sound out of their mouth, which is really all it comes down to. And there's a science to making music that does that as well. So when I put out last year, I put out my song Kitties and Boobs. And I was like, I want to use like every trick in the book, every parlor trick in the book that would just make an audience bounce up and down. And so I used like, I went, I dug into like sort of the big EDM hits and things like that. And that was again, I don't even listen to that kind of music. But I was pulling things from this type of thing that I don't usually do. And, and I just put in like, the the full step key change in the last chorus and you know the the long the long drawn out snare rolls that that drop into the core you know the next chorus and things like that and i just did, pulled every trick i could and i know all the tricks are in there and it's that song still makes me like bounce up and down right so there's something that's just built in up here that we've gotten mm. so used to over the hundreds of years of music that we have that even when you know the tricks are there, it still makes your mm. heart swell, still makes you dance, or still makes you bounce up and down, you know? Mm. And that's where yeah. I think the real science part of music comes in. So when I hear a song like I, I Believe I Can Fly, I can see all the nuts and bolts behind that and go, mm. oh, of course, yeah, that's going to be a that's gonna be a tearjerker, heart-wrenching kind of song. But at the same time, you're just like, oh, man, that's a really good song, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, it's. I think probably most of us have seen the – was it the Axel of Awesome cup like video Axis they of did awesome? on YouTube? Yeah. Oh yeah. Axis of Awesome. Yeah. Or basically they just yeah, they play the the four chords. You know, the the four, four chords. chords that we all love and, and know yeah. from from heart. The and, comment um, section on that video just kills me. Because it's just mm. people going, There's no creativity left in the world, man. <laughs> it's like, come on, Bach used that chord progression. Okay. It's been around for four hundred years. Just relax. Yeah. I mean, I know that was really interesting the court case with Ed Sheeran and yeah. you know, that, that whole, that whole thing. And just, yeah, the, I mean, court progressions in particular are just one of those things where like there's all there, like, there's so much, so many of them are reused. Oh, and it sure. just seem like some, sometimes there's a, there are like trends where a certain mm-hmm. chord progression just has its time. And like every song is using the same yeah. chord progression now. Like yep. uh, comes to mind is that closer the chain smokers and Halsey song mm-hmm. is a yeah. <laughs> like it's like the build up and then down again. Yeah. And for it seemed like for a little while, like that was the new four chords where it was just like yeah. that that chord progression over and over again. Yep. And like like you were just describing, it's like even if we know, okay, it's like these it's these four chords again. Like here we go again. Yeah. There's a there's familiarity to it. 
It's it's that same idea as you know when I do a joke where the punchline is what the audience was thinking. There's that 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 different kind of release where they're like it's a comfort zone and they go oh yeah okay all right I know what this is all right cool you know mm. so yeah it's that kind of thing. But with my guitar students, I go look here's five chord progressions. That's like eighty percent of what you're gonna play in the world, and they mm. go out and find songs. They're like I, I you're right it's those five chord progressions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so helpful. It's a great place to start out. Just like learning, yeah, a few chord progressions. You can play yeah. pretty much everything. Yep. So more questions that are coming in here. I see Narion and Janet asked, Phil, do you do your own booking? I do. I'd rather not. It's my least favorite part of this business is hustling for gigs. That's what I do on Tuesdays. And I hate doing bookings. It's different. Eh, it's kind of different in the comedy world than it is in the music world, but not entirely it's still about who you know and referrals. And the one thing that's different is that in music, it's very easy to find the contact information for the club booker. In comedy, for some reason, it's hidden mysteries of who actually books a place. And because you can go get the Indie Bible or something like that for music, which is fantastic. And then for comedians, we have to find somebody we know who's playing there and go, hey, who books that place? All right, it's this guy, but don't share his contact information. You know, <laughs> and so... There's a little bit of that ridiculousness in in comedy booking, but it's most of the time feels like uh, screaming into a tornado and and hoping to hear something back. And so it's I'm actually getting ready to hire an assistant to help me with that part of it because it really is my least favorite part of the job. But I don't have a booking mm-hmm. agent and I don't have the the credits and the juice to interest a, a booking agent just yet. Plus, a lot of clubs don't like to deal with booking agents anyway. And the little bits of booking that I've done, the agents are I mean, from the other side of, you know, booking acts for a show. Agents are a pain in the ass most of the time. And so most of the clubs would rather deal with the artists themselves. And so mm-hmm. that's that's kind of where where we're stuck. I mean, as you get mm-hmm. to different levels, but Dave Nihill, if you've ever seen Dave Nihill, he's a friend of mine. And he he's he booked nationwide theater tours by himself <laughs> it was a stupid amount of work and just for this tour that he's going on next year he finally he finally got himself a booking agent so yeah i do it all myself and it's a drag so i'm gonna get hire an assistant <laughs> sounds like a great idea yeah and in particular like hiring people to do things that you're already doing a bunch that you know inside out and you know that you don't like and you don't enjoy yeah. and they take up time it's a great thing to bring someone in for yeah. And one, one, one idea that came up, and I think this is you know, relevant for, for all of us, is when it comes to hiring people in a, an assistant role or something like someone who's doing something like, like that, I couldn't recommend more highly to send out a, an email to your existing audience, to your mm. list, and say, I'm looking for you know, someone who is interested in, in collaborating and becoming a part of the team. And in an ideal world, if you're able to find some alignment between, like, let's say that you have a diamond offer, or you have a higher ticket offer for $3,000 or $5,000, if you can actually find someone who is interested, like who wants that enough and they love what you do and they want to be a part of it and, they, and they're a great fit for like the community and the culture, then a lot of times you can find some good alignment for like a trade of mm. service of sorts. And that can be a really powerful way to get some of those first initial key team members mm. who, um, you know, it can be challenging sometimes to find someone who has the right alignment and is, has like the right community fit. Mm-hmm. But if they're in your community already, they love your music, they know who you are, and they're one of your biggest fans, then it's a, a amazing resource to, to tap into. 
Nice. I like that idea. I like that a lot because I was just going to go to Upwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Let's let's sync up on our uh, next playground session or in between. I'm happy to share. We've that's how we've hired most of our team members. You know, sure. Our, like yeah. you know, top you know team leaders are just A plus ten out of ten. You know, people has has been generally through an email that we send out to our mm-hmm. our list and. Yeah, just, there's just a lot of a lot of alignment. So I'm happy to share that with you. And it's I'm with anyone if anyone else here is interested in in that email, it'd be probably a great template to have for all of us to be able to send out to our people. Cool. Yeah, we'll talk more about that for sure. Cool. Well, hey Phil, there's there's one final request that came in, and let's go for it. Um, of course this of course this came in, which I, I would love I would love to hear a joke as well. Is a couple of people are asking, can you share one of your jokes, Phil? <laughs> um, it's so funny because when I'm not on stage, I, I like barely even remember what my material is. One of the things I used to do before I'd go on is I would try and run my material backstage. That was a disaster. So now when I'm not on stage, I don't think about my material at all, but unless I'm rehearsing. But let me yeah, think of that. It's going to be a good like joke for musicians. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> for musicians. I don't know. It doesn't um, have to be. <laughs> yeah. No. If you have so, one. Uh, one that I do, I talk about sort of, you know, I had to lose a few pounds because somebody called me ma'am while I was facing them. And, and so it's a, my, <laughs> my girlfriend and I started biking together. And when she rides a bike, she looks like she's exercising. I look like I don't own a car. Like somehow she's, she's losing weight and I'm losing respect. I don't know how that works. People are driving by me, raise the minimum wage. I'm like, not on my way to work, man. Got a better job than that. Doing all right for myself. So that's the bike joke, which you can probably find on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I was like I could have played both of those at the same time. Well, Phil, man, thanks so much for coming on here live. This has been a really fun conversation, and yeah, um, it's it's really cool too hearing hearing a little bit more about your your story and kind of get started, and you know having a you know similar mentor right at the beginning who was mm-hmm. teaching tour hacking and stuff like that. Yep, it is it, it's kind of like a cyclical kind of kind of thing, isn't it? For sure. Um, well, that's why as soon as I saw what you were doing, I was like, oh, I know this. I, this is what I've been looking for was somebody to continue this idea because mm-hmm. Tim was not technology oriented at all. And it was the 90s and we didn't have everything that we have now, you know, and he was mm-hmm. uh, he was struggling to keep up with the technology part of it towards the end of what he was doing. And so when I saw what you were doing with the added technology part, I was like, yeah, this is this is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> it's all about those two things, right? It's like bottom line is it's about connecting with your fans, right? It's about, mm-hmm. it's about take, you know, finding the right people who want to hear what you have to share and resonate with it and connecting with them. And it's about doing it in a way that, you know, creates freedom so that, you know, you're able to, you know, to have more time, you know, to focus on being creative. And yep. so it's a pretty cool subset that, that we're a part of. And uh, I also just want to give like a, a shout out to Phil. You know, you've been a part of our, you know, part of our mastermind for for a, a while now, and we've been doing these first access playground sessions for a while now. And so, a lot of the new stuff, the new features, and things that we're developing were things that we've really like workshopped together. Mm-hmm. And, and Phil's been a really you know important you know part of of those meetings. So Phil, I appreciate appreciate you, uh, appreciate your humor and what you're doing with with your community. It's awesome. And thanks, thanks. for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah! Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guests today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then I'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take the music careers to the next level. 
time to be a modern musician is now. And I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.